Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $123 billion in AUM committed to delivering long-term results through active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in the areas of our proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. So I'm excited to be here today with my colleagues, Elisa Mazin and Michael Testorf. Elisa and Michael are co-managers of the ClearBridge International Growth Strategy and both have over 30 years of investment industry experience. The topic of today's podcast is finding mispriced international growth opportunities. I don't know about both of you, but I think uh, we should be naming this podcast the Year of International. International has been lagging their U.S. counterparts for quite some time here, and a lot of investors think that the pendulum won't swing back to the other side. But if you look at indices so far, year to date, um, the EFI and the ACWI are, are both leading by a healthy margin. What a lot of investors forget, though, is that when the pendulum does swing back, it does happen for a period of time. The EFI outperformed U.S. indices from 83 to 88 by over 300 percent, and again in 2002 through 2007. And uh, I think getting through some of the political risks here in Europe may be that inflection point. Um, so, Michael, I'm going to start off with you because you recently published a white paper on the international space and specifically European equities, and you were pretty bullish. And looking back, you, you pretty much nailed that assessment. Can you walk us through your, your thoughts on that space now? Thanks for having me. Uh, just to recap the main talking points in the white paper, we talked about the most likely election outcomes being pro-Europe and pro-Euro. And secondly, we talked about the ECP stimulus having a positive impact on the economy. So let me follow up on the reasons why we are bullish on international equities and particular Europe. So we see four tailwinds for Europe coming up. Political worries have not materialized. Number two, improving economic environment with EPS upward revisions, reversing valuation discounts, and lastly, the currency strengths, which we were expecting. So Macron winning the election in France is even more important for France and for Europe than most of the people think. France and Germany are the main anchors of Europe. Without them, the European Union will fail. In the next two weeks, we will know if Macron can get the majority with his own party. If so, that would be very, very bullish. But even if a coalition, it would be just fine and the so much needed reforms will be implemented. I personally think that Macron is a smart business-oriented guy who has a chance to get reforms done, which could change the future of France materially. Or you remember the times when people called Germany being the sick man of Europe. That was in the early 2000s. Germany had still to digest the reunification, fighting with the unions and rigid labor laws. Finally, Chancellor Schroeder from the Socialist Party implemented the labor reforms in Germany. That was 2005. That cost him, at the end of the day, it cost him the job, but his successor, Merkel, and Germany got the benefits out of it in the years after. Today's Germany's workforce is bigger than right after the reunification. We have record highs, a 7% bigger workforce than in the early 90s, and that is the case with an even shrinking population. Wow. I mean, I make a very bold statement here, but I could see that Macron could be the Schroeder of France. I would need several years, it would need several years that France re transforms from a bloated civil servant country to a Germany challenger. On a relative scale, France could do better than Germany, 
in the years to come, assuming that these reforms uh, reforms are implemented? Well, and I, I think that Macron has a, a really good opportunity right now um, with the upcoming parliamentary elections. Polls have his party, the uh, Republic on the Move party, which is a brand new party in mm -hmm. France, taking 30 percent um, of that parliamentary election, which would give him a healthy majority in order to push through his his actual agenda. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a key component that a lot of investors don't think about. So, you know, while we're on the topic of elections, um, I know we've gotten through a couple crucial ones here recently. Are there any more that are coming up in the near term? Yes, you're right. There are two more major elections coming up in Europe. In fall, we have Germany, where I expect Merkel to win again. And that is also, again, a pro-Europe and a pro-Euro uh, outcome. And the last one would be Italy. That would be in 2018. But there's a risk that it could come to an early election outcome. But even in case of early elections, I predict that the party of Renzi and the coalition partner will have the majority in the parliament. That would be the last big country with a pro-Europe and pro-Euro agenda. Perhaps it's a little bit too early to say that, but I think that populism has peaked in Europe. Really? That's not a popular belief nowadays. No, but I think so. You know, when people saw that we're stronger together than on our own, and that was fueled actually by Mr. Trump, who is extremely unpopular in, in Europe, and also like the Turkish minister Erdogan and Putin, and at the end of the day, it's also the UK, which will go through quite some difficulties with Brexit. Yeah, I think we got a, a couple more years of those negotiations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So politics are in favor. European equity flows have picked up after Macron's win, and we're in good shape politically seen. So, so Mike, you mentioned a, a couple of points driving European equities uh, for, for higher from here, uh, even after the great run that they've had. What about the improvement in the economy that you've seen? Yeah. I mean, I refer back to my white paper at that time, and I stated that the QE is successful. And the ECB started the aggressive easing later than the Fed, and therefore also means that the benefits are coming a little bit later. Um, yeah, structurally, they had some, some difficulties getting that, that QE in place initially. Absolutely. It was 2012 where, where the ECB started the QE, but then the Germans were very restrictive. And, to th and we needed up to 2015 to get to push the pedal fully down again. And that's where we really can talk about successful QE. So if you feel like, look our, even at the charts in the white paper, um, I think we are on the right track. Most of the countries do really well. Uh, Ireland is again the Celtic tiger. Spain is growing for years again. Portugal just exited the clause of austerity. France, as I mentioned, has an outstanding opportunity. And Germany continues to do well to a point that not all jobs can be filled. The weakest link here is Italy. Yeah. But even here we see clear progress. It is small from the bottom, but there is progress. Employment is growing by 1.3%. And you will not believe it, this is the record for the last 10 years for Italy. A lot of people are probably not yeah. aware of that. No, unemployment is still high, but improving. Household disposable income increased by 1.6%. Trade surplus is increasing. Real estate transactions are coming up again. They increased the turnover by 19%. Michael, let me hold up there for a second because I know there's been a lot of ink spilled mm -hmm. about the Italian banking crisis and that potentially manifesting mm -hmm. itself uh, over the next couple of years. Is, mm -hmm. is that something that you, you see materializing? Yeah, actually, I do disagree there. Um, the, banking crisis, uh, the banking system gets repaired as we speak. So two years ago, we had 10% of the entire sector, which was basically insolvent. Today, we're talking about 1%, and these are two smaller banks in northern Italy. 
And I expect these ones to be resolved relatively shortly, so for sure in 2017. Long growth is finally seeing some, some signs of revival. And when it comes to earnings, which is the other driver for Europe, right? We had to wait a long time until we see earnings revisions upwards in Europe. And quarter one earnings were very, very strong. Big success, I would call it. And I would expect that these earnings will progress for the rest of 2017. Because of the domestic GDP improvements, which I was talking about, but also because of the improving of emerging markets. The CapEx cycle finally could see an upswing. GDP growth numbers will be around 1.8% for 17 and 1.7% for 2018. So this is not really a lot uh, in a way when you compare that to the other recoveries, but it's good that we are on, on a growth path again. And inflation and other indicators show no signs of overheating in the Eurozone. Well, I, I think it's interesting that uh, the Eurozone is growing faster than the U.S. here by a pretty healthy mm -hmm. clip and investors still are doubting that, that economic mm -hmm. recovery over there. Yeah. And, you know, one more point on this kind of slow recovery. Um, so relatively stable and low growth environment is actually very favorable for our growth management style. Because the largest part of our portfolio is in, is in secular growth companies, which when we pick them, they trade at a discount to their intrinsic value. But these compounders are normally doing well in this environment. And one more thing where strategists talking about value wins over growth in a rising yield environment, mm -hmm. I would argue that the QE artificially suppressed yields and we are just adjusting to a normal environment. And our growth approach will be favorable for the next years. Well, if you think about QE driving rates down, mm -hmm. when you mm -hmm. taper and eventually mm -hmm. unwind that QE, it would have the reverse effect mm -hmm. of yeah. driving rates up, of course. Yeah, I agree. Well, what about uh, valuations over in Europe? So in terms of valuation, I mean, we had a, the political risk discount in Europe, um, which has now at least partly reversed. The continental European market is the best performing market, as you mentioned, Jeff, in 2017. But there's now more to go for. And in particular, in some sectors, our major overweight in continental Europe is in the banking sector. And in terms of valuation, if you look at the broad market, we have a 10% discount to MSCI World and 12, 13% discount to the US. But if you were adjusting for cyclically, cyclically depressed sectors, I think the better, discount better would be a little bit known more. As Cape. Yeah. yeah. Yep. In terms of momentum, I would favor clearly Europe over the U.S., um, and the U.S. might actually experience earnings downgrades if I assume there is no major tax reform, and in Europe I see the earnings upgrades coming. Given where we are with this uh, agenda from mm -hmm. this president and, uh, and what he's trying to move through, I, I think tax reform is probably a 2018 story rather than mm -hmm. a, a 2017, mm -hmm. so there's definitely a little bit of a, a window mm -hmm. there before we potentially hit mm -hmm. that spot. Another thing that helps investors get a total return, uh, whether it's investing in an index or a specific company, is the currency translation. Where do you see the euro going? As you know, I like some bold statements here and there. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I was saying actually three months ago that the euro will go to 120. We have done already 7% since then. I think we will make another 7 to 8%. And why is that exactly? Because I do believe that yields differentials uh, are artificially high right now because the QE is at different stages. The Fed uh, talked about shrinking the balance sheet and the European, which went full power in 2015, and continued to expand the balance sheet. So in 2017, we will see a bigger QE stimulus as a percentage of GDP than the US ever had. Wow. So I expect the ECB to reduce and stop quantitative easing in 2018, 
and the yield curve will move upwards. Reduction in interest rate differential paired with a similar growth rates should lead to higher euro. I would agree with that. And I think if uh, you think about currencies and how they move, they, they don't move much differently than a stock. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever is going to happen is uh, reflected in the, the price of that stock or the currency. And if you think about the euro, the fact that they will mm-hmm. eventually unwind QE or, or taper, mm-hmm. um, maybe not unwind quite yet, and get to a point where they're raising rates, that should be both tailwinds mm-hmm. for the euro getting stronger. So in, in that scenario, Michael, what are your favorites? So my, my scenario is that domestic stocks will perform best and the banks will be in the center of this particular call. So what happened to banks? Bank net interest income has suffered for so many years and an increase on the yield curve will reverse the depressed income source. Increasing GDP and higher employment is good for banks as we will see more loan growth, but also the creation of of non-performing loans will decrease, and perhaps we see even some of the non-performing loans and existing loan portfolios being recovered. So the, the banks had a good run over the last six months, but there is still more to come in case the interest rate curve is moving upwards. So we could easily see 10 to 15% earnings upgrades in banks, and with that comes a re-rating of the multiples, which will increase the total return over the EPS increase, which I see. Yeah, European banks right now are at generational lows, and even though they've run, I, I think they probably could have uh, a lot more room to run on the upside. Aliso, do you have any thoughts on, on Europe? Well, one of the things I, I think is important is that, I mean, as recently as 2015 and 16, uh, there was real concern about dissolution of the euro and the whole euro experiment really going away. So the change in uh, the environment with Macron winning, I think, is really significantly and should not be, I think, understated. Uh, You know, the other thing is that the euro itself has been, um, it's just been very, very weak. And I think there's been a lot of political risk. It's very hard to quantify how much um, election worry uh, really feeds into into the euro. But I think it's probably more than you understood. So now that we're starting to see sort of the more significant elections really kind of get out of the way here, um, we really are starting to see the euro uh, stabilize and grow. And if you look at the DXY index, the dollar index, you can really see it's starting to, to kind of materially roll over here. Let's shift to another region of sure. the world, uh, a region of the world where uh, if you ask 10 different investors their thoughts, you'd get 10 wildly uh, different answers on what's going to materialize, uh, which is China. There's obviously some ongoing concern about the debt levels in China. I think we've been hearing about those debt levels for the better part of a decade. But you've, you've really seen economic performance start to, to, to firm up here recently. So what's your assessment on China's economic situation? And do you see any spillover of this debt issuance that we've seen over the next couple of years? So let me try to simplify a bit China's current economic situation and sort of the debt burden, what people are talking about, and how we think it's likely to play out. Uh, one thing um, that's important to bear in mind is that debt issues and the resolution of debt problems in China is not new. China's always had creative ways to restructure debt, and they've had a few debt issues that they've had to resolve as they move along their, their path to growth. Ultimately, they do resolve them. Uh, they have a very China way of doing that, and we think that uh, that certainly that will happen again. Now, Lisa, what were those two times uh, that they restructured their their debt issues? Sorry, there were three um, oh. previous periods of of generally larger debt restructurings. There have there have been more, but three sort of major ones: uh, 1991 and 1992. That period of time, uh, the government inject- injected about 
60 billion yen, uh, yuan through subsidies and bank loans to clear out uh, debt, but that was very much at the corporate level. Uh, the Asian financial crisis in 1997 and 98, uh, the Ministry of Finance issued about 300 billion yuan of special government bonds to rebuild capital levels at banks. They also established asset management companies to help them acquire bad loans, restructure, and in many cases convert that debt to equity. And this was done very quietly away from the glare of the market. Ten years later, during the global financial crisis, China aggressively stimulated their economy and injected something like four trillion yuan wow. into the market and really sort of boosted performance. However, what that did was really create an imbalance at the local level. Um, now, what they did was they sort of funded sort of off-balance sheet arrangements. The the local governments are not allowed to issue direct debt. And um, and that created all sorts of problems down the road. It was something like 24% of GDP, um, according to their national audit office, that in many cases was sort of bad debt. So it's, it's safe to say that it's not their, their first rodeo. By no means. So, so where has most of this debt been accumulated in their system? Well, the current concern right now is in the corporate bond market. Uh, if you look at the different layers of debt, sort of government, corporate, personal, um, it's really very much at the corporate level. Uh, and this has grown at a very accelerated rate over the past five years. And generally what you see in large economies where you see that kind of accelerated sort of debt uh, growth is you usually see some sort of a, a problem. Um, we also see that bad debts are on the rise. Bank loans as a percentage of GP, GDP have grown fairly significantly from sort of 90 to 140 percent at least uh, yeah, that's a, debt a of GDP. A short period of time. In a, in a very short period of time. IMF has been raising issues, um, and NPLs are, are starting to grow. The, the real issue is this is at the state-owned level. So a lot of uh, the Chinese uh, market is really about state-owned enterprises, and these are in many cases heavy industries, utilities, materials, industrials, um, where you have um, you had too cheap capital, everybody building plants, uh, and this has created uh, not just pollution problems, but debt problems and, and other problems as well. The government needs to solve that. Well, I think China thought that the uh, the commodity boom would last forever, and we all know that since the crisis, it, it sure hasn't. That's right. So China is actually really trying to steadily open many of its markets. Um, you know, it's really prying the door open to really allow foreigners into the corporate bond market. Recently, Moody's came in is actually allowed to rate companies, which is sort of interesting. They're going to be going to Basel III um, bank requirements. So there's a lot of things that they're doing to really open up, as you know, the capital. The currency has been um, open through the capital account. There's a lot of more openness around China to really grow that grow that economy. And as you open up these different levers, obviously that's going to be it can, great for their equities. Potentially, yes. It can it can be terrific for equities. Actually, equities are really underdeveloped within the scheme of sort of debt and bank lending. So equities, we think, you know, really could take a place in terms of um, uh, a place to really uh, build capital and um, and raise capital efficiently, I guess. So, so, so people think that if when China does deal with some of these debt issues that you're going to see a, a Lehman-style event in, in China. Is that something that you foresee, or will it be a lot more moderate than that? Well, I, I certainly don't think the Chinese will allow anything like a Lehman-style event. And we think that it's, it's really not at the same scale, and, and the market structure is very different. If you look at, um, at the way that banks are constructed in terms of, of their funding, um, it's really mostly deposits. It's not interbank lending, although there is some interbank lending. It's certainly not at the scale of a Lehman. 
um, and you have generally pretty stable uh, deposits, um, which should allow for restructuring. Um, but there will be numerous political events that are going on in 2017. Uh, it'll culminate with the November Central Committee plenum. Uh, there'll also be a decision from EU member states on whether to grant China market economy status. So we think that they will restructure. We think they will manage us out of the sort of eye of the market. Um, and there are a lot of uh, sort of new tools the PBOC has um, and, and, and ways that they're thinking about doing these type of restructurings. But it will be very much, I think, away from the, the sort of eye of the market. Yeah, I think a big development in China, especially at the PBOC, which is their central bank, was to come up with a number of different ways to provide liquidity Correct. based on 2013 stress that we saw. Um, so in, in looking for opportunities in China, you mentioned state-owned enterprises, or would those be opportunities that you would pursue? So we don't believe that those are growth stocks. So no, they're not. That will be maybe interesting for, for some of the value brethren, but um, really what we have always looked at in China are sort of the new economy stocks. Um, so they're really more virtual rather than asset heavy. Um, they're disruptive players, high, durable, top-line growth, and, and bottom-line growers. They dominate their space in gaming, social media, consumer spending, uh, and they've been outpacing the SOE market for years. So um, even if the Chinese mishandle things and there is a problem, we think that the stocks that we own in the portfolio will be very well-placed to, to outperform. So let's take a, a little bit of a step back here, and um, I want to ask you a question about emerging market economies and, and how they inform your investment process. Do they do it either directly through the companies you seek to own or as a demand source for more global international companies? We really look at it both ways. We look at, at individual countries and then, of course, the companies that are, that are there, um, but also many, many, many of our European companies, Japanese companies have emerging markets um, that are that are part of their their revenue streams. So we always have to be aware of what's going on in emerging markets. But as you know, we're very valuation focused, and it's, so for us, it's always a balance between valuation, upside, and risk. And so we're always trying to find sort of that perfect balance. Now, some of our accounts will have a maximum ten percent emerging market um, uh, level. So we won't go above that, but there may be others where we have a bit of a broader mandate and we can we can go a little bit further. Great. So let's switch gears here for a little bit. Uh, one key theme that the international growth team often emphasizes is disruption, whether it be technological or in the form of uh, innovative business models. Can you explain how you view disruption in the context of international growth investing and, and what that actually means in the terms of the types of companies that you, you target? Sure. So disruption happens when there's a convergence of new technologies that allows entrepreneurs to create new markets, while at the same time, disruption destroys or generally materially alters existing products, markets, or industries. Disruptive solutions come in different forms. Normally, we think of a disruptive product as one that is just cheaper to make or, or, or use than an existing one. But sometimes a more expensive product can be disruptive if it's far superior. So think of the smartphone invented by Apple. Sure. Um, that disrupted an inferior but also a much cheaper product like the Nokia or the Japanese feature phones. And now Apple is the uh, biggest company in the world at this the point. The leader, right. So a source of disruption comes from technologies that experience exponential cost reductions. Uh, the most well-understood example is semiconductors and computing where processing power and costs are improving exponentially, according to Moore's Law. 
Over the years, cheaper and faster semiconductors have helped create many new disruptive products and services. Better, better known as the S-curve. That's right. Um, but computing, computing is not the only technology where performance is improving. Um, so other examples of improving technology include data storage capacity, digital imaging processing, network speeds and bandwidth, solar cell costs, sensors, etc. So major disruptions are being driven by convergence of these and other technologies. A smartphone was possible because many improved technologies were combined to create a superior product. Sure. You know, some other examples of, of disruption include electric vehicles. So electric vehicles will transform the automotive industry, an industry that's really seen very little change over the past 100 years. And it will make new winners and losers of, um, of many businesses today that supply the traditional auto manufacturers if they don't adapt quickly. It's being driven by an exponential t technology, that's lithium-ion batteries, where costs are declining at a rate of 15 to 20 percent a year. Wow. And if some people really get it together, it may even it may even accelerate from there. After five or 10 years, that's going to be a pretty low cost. That's right. That's right. Buy your Tesla. So EV penetration may even uh, accelerate uh, due to the convergence of other technologies and new business models, sensors, software algorithms that are improving so quickly you'll see safe self-driving technology that could even accelerate the adoption curve. Well, and just a, a quick thing on uh, electric vehicles. I've had the pleasure of driving one recently, and they're actually very fun to drive. You get instant power. Absolutely. It's that instant torque that really, I think, grabs people. It is not an inferior driving experience. It is a better driving experience. And if you've ever seen uh, the McLaren and, and the Tesla X on the track, you know that the Tesla X actually wins in the in the first sort of 200. Well, and I think what a lot of other people forget is that uh, when you own an electric vehicle, there's a lot of costs that are cheaper during the life of that vehicle. Think about maintenance. Absolutely. Your traditional internal combustion engine has over 2,000 parts because you have gears, you have transmissions, you have that engine. An electric vehicle only has 20 parts. That's right. So over the course of that car's life, uh, your maintenance costs are going to be low. No oil changes, no fluid changes, no air filters. And once you already have that car in existence, it's going to cost you much less as fuel. Um, you know, estimates have it anywhere from three to ten times cheaper, um, depending on where you live. So that's interesting. Um, but when you look at the auto park, uh, what we know is generally um, people use their cars about 5% of the time that they own it during a day. So where do you really use you know, a lot of energy and, and gasoline is in trucks. Right. So, um, you know, Tesla has said that trucks are their next um, sort of area that they'll tackle. That could be very significant. Trucks use a lot of gasoline, a lot of gasoline. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to to basically um, see that that market be disrupted in a in a meaningful way. Well, if you if you think about a trucking business, their biggest cost isn't the upfront cost of That's that right. trunk, but the fuel but that the they fuel. use. Um, so as people upgrade their fleets, that could be a big driver for electric vehicles. Absolutely. Are there any other technologies that you view as disruptive? We're looking at so many different types of disruption. I mean, disruption we really think is is everywhere. It's 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 certainly um, industry specific, but business models are also changing consumer behavior, and we're not even talking about, you know, artificial intelligence. And it's really driving businesses away from kind of some of the traditional players. So when you think of the relationship between retailers and consumers, we've gone from localized shopping habits to an endless shelf, low shipping costs, and basically global accessibility. So the relationship and the power has really moved from brands and, and maybe stores locally um, to enabling platforms. So platform technologies is something that's that's really interesting. 
So we really think disruption is is everywhere, and we think disruption is global. Uh, we are seeing it in places that we haven't seen in the past. Companies that don't understand this risk, we think, are, are really at risk of being left behind. Um, well, Ret- retailers come to mind. Retailers certainly come to mind, but uh, by no means, by, by no means, are they alone. Um, and the other thing is, is we see that you know, looking at good business models that have been developed in the U.S. or even overseas are replicating themselves in other markets very quickly. Um, Now, sometimes there's different degrees of competitive intensity. Some markets may be more protected, but those business models are coming in. They're being adopted very quickly. Um, And there's a lot of reasons for this. One is low cost of capital. It's it's very low to take that risk, the low cost of technology and many, many other things. So um, it's 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 something that we think is really interesting. It's very relevant. um, And as growth investors, something we're very focused on. In terms of disruption, I, I think every sector will be affected by disruptive forces earlier or later or to a different degree. I mean, the key is to find the right place uh, in in this kind of environment. Either you go for the disruptor or for the incumbent player. The trick here is to understand these kind of disruptions early and to use it to its advantage. Right. So, I mean, I talked about banks earlier. So in retail banking, it's important to adapt to the behavior of the younger banking clients, right? Um, they want to have all types of communication with the bank and whenever and wherever. So technology is the key for them to prepare for this kind of disruption. Mobile, mobile interactions. Yeah, exactly. Don't so go to that's the bank to actually is. deposit your check. Yeah. So we looked for banking software providers and we found actually one. And uh, I think this kind of software will make it possible for many banks to stay ahead of the game. Well, and it's also great for banks, too, mm-hmm. because the less tellers that you have, the less locations, the, the less capital. The lower the cost, yeah. right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Elisa, you often emphasize that your team maintains a, a valuation approach to growth. Can you explain what you mean by this? And as a kind of a follow-up, what are the risks and trade-offs that you consider in identifying international equities and managing your portfolio? So um, what we mean by evaluation approach to growth, we, we believe growth investing really helps you achieve your financial goals faster than nearly any type of investment approach. And that's generally due to the simple math of compounding higher returns over long periods of time. So we think it's pretty simple, and it really just comes down to math. Well, there was somebody famous that said that the most interesting invention in the world was compounding interest. <laughs> I think it was it uh, Ben Franklin that said that? Probably. <laughs> so, um, but the problem with growth stocks is everybody else thinks they're attractive too. And so generally on traditional valuation metrics, they're more expensive than other stocks in the marketplace. So Of course, we believe that overpaying for any type of stock, if it's value or growth, whatever it is, a house, you don't want to overpay for anything um, because that will always generate poor returns. Um, But overpaying for for growth stocks, we think, is particularly treacherous. So growth companies uh, go through different like cycles and, and invest for growth. And when they step on that accelerator for growth, top line accelerates, the earnings may or may not, and the market may or may not be happy with that. So when that happens, if you know a large proportion of people are not happy with that or don't expect that, those stocks can uh, derate pretty precipitously. So we want to avoid uh, this type of, of high volatility in our portfolios. We do this in a few different ways. Um, obviously, always being very valuation focused, um, we, we look to buy stocks that we think are mispriced. 
for their growth rates. So we buy them when we think the market doesn't like something about it, but we actually believe that that profit can come back and we can benefit from that mispricing. Well, if it's already mispriced, there's not much more that right. can go down from that it, point. It does two things. It, it think, we think it gives you more upside, but it also it actually minimizes the downside as well. And that's something that we think about a lot. It's important to us. So, um, and then once the idea is better understood and that sort of temporary issue is is resolved, um, we just allow that stock to continue to compound at, at high rates. We think valuation sensitivity is a, is, a, is a good check for us on risk. Valuation, position sizing, uh, all of these things allow the portfolio to give us a risk that's more in line with the market uh, rather than above the market, but with higher returns. So it's the thing that we're always driving for, which is lower risk and higher return. Great. Well, I think that's all the time we have here for today. I don't know about you listening, but I'm pretty excited about the international equity space <laughs> after this conversation. Elisa, Michael, thank you so much for the time today. Mm-hmm. Thanks really appreciate you coming in here. Thanks, Thanks, Jeff. And thank you, everybody, for, for taking the time to listen. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of June 5th, 2017, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither Clearbridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information. Thank you.